All right, we are going to continue in Acts 15. What have we discovered so far in Acts 15? What is that chapter about? The Council of Jerusalem. All right. Let's expound upon that. The Council of Jerusalem. What happened at Jerusalem at this council? Why did they have to, to get together and convene and have this council in the first place? So yeah, they have this this whole new thing where Paul is now bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. Um, God has opened up the the door of salvation, not just for the Jews, his chosen people, but now it's available for for every tongue, tribe, and nation. And it's caused some confusion. And these Judaizers have crept down from Judea, and they are um, causing a little bit of a stir and saying that the Gentiles now need to come to Christ through Judaism, that they first need to be Jews before they can be Christians, that they have to be circumcised in order to know Christ, in order to know salvation, and be justified before God. Um, The issue um, really is circumcision, but that's focusing around this issue of, of salvation, of soteriology, what it means to be saved, and that's why it's such a, a big, important subject, a big, important topic, and uh, caused all of the apostles and the elders to get together at Jerusalem, and they were determined to get this settled because it was such a, an important, vital issue. In response to um, the Pharisees in verse 5, who It says in verse 5, they said that it was necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And then we see three different messages. Last week we looked at Peter's message. And what was within Peter's message? What did he appeal to to say that salvation was indeed for the Gentiles and that they didn't need to be circumcised before they could find Christ? Yeah, they received the Holy Spirit. So that was proof, evidence, positive that um, God had placed his, his grace on them, that they had received that same seal of the Holy Spirit, the same promise of the Holy Spirit that the, the Jews had received at, at Pentecost. And now he was being poured out on the Gentiles as well. Um, he also spoke to the fact that God had told him directly. He said, God showed me that it was for the Gentiles, and he appealed back to chapter 10 and this vision that he had of the sheep falling down and how he was speaking with Cornelius. And he doesn't mention that specifically, Cornelius, but um, we, we know that it was Peter who did that years ago. Um, and he had seen how God worked with Cornelius. And chapter 8, we see how the Ethiopian eunuch was um, welcomed in as a believer as part of the church. And then in chapter, or in verse 12, what is the response that we see after Peter sits down from speaking? Answer is not up here. It's in your Bible. <laughs> verse 12. 
they kept silent. So Peter shut them up, right? Um, so these Pharisees who believed came in, they said, no, they need to be circumcised. Peter got up and said, no, God told me um, that salvation is for the Gentiles. In fact, he sent the Holy Spirit upon these Gentiles, and they received it in the same way that, that we did. He made no distinction between us and them, and he has cleansed their heart by faith. In verse 10, he kind of throws it at them, and he poses this question, um, which is really kind of a, an in-your-face question. He says, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they also are. And they didn't have any response to that. They just shut up. They kept silent. They said, well, I don't know why we, we put that burden on them. When you're right, we can't do it. Our fathers couldn't do it. Um, maybe we shouldn't be. They had no response, nothing to say. And that's when Paul and Barnabas then stood up in the latter part of verse 12. And what do they appeal to as evidence for the Gentile salvation? Signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. All right. So remember, um, 13 and 14 is when they went on their first missionary journey. They went up through the region of Galatia, and they performed all these signs and wonders among these Gentiles. And God, obviously, is the one who is behind those signs and wonders. He is the power behind the, the authority that he's given to the apostles. And they're able to perform those signs and wonders only because God had willed that and only because it was God's will that um, these signs, remember signs point to something. They're pointing to the fact that um, Jesus is in fact the king. He is in fact the Messiah. He's in fact God. And he has been, he has sent Paul and Barnabas to proclaim this message to the Gentiles. And so if, if God was behind these miracles, or if God wasn't behind these miracles, they would not have been able to perform them. So clearly he was, and um, it was his intent for salvation to come to the Gentiles. And now in verses 13 and following, we're going to get into James' um, response. And he's going to stand up and he's going to speak. And it's kind of interesting because James here really kind of takes the lead. And he gives the final word, the final say. Um, this is a good proof text for any of our, our Catholic friends who say, well, Peter, he was the first pope because while he spoke up and he spoke first, that was just what Peter does because that's within Peter's nature. That's the kind of guy that he is. But James here is the one who gives the final authoritative word and he's kind of leading the gig, um, not the, the so-called first pope, but James is the one who's taking the lead. Um, will somebody read for us verses 12 through 21, please? All of you kept silent. They were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brother, listen to me. Uh, Simeon was related has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the wonders of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle, tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, 
so that the rest of man may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from these from things contaminated by idols and from fortification and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses, uh, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. All right, thank you. All right, so looking back at how he starts off in verse 13, he says, it says, after they had stopped speaking, that is Paul and Barnabas, James answered saying, brethren, listen to me. So again, he's kind of commanding the crowd saying, hey, listen up, um, I'm about to speak. And, and he gives the final word really on, on the issue. Uh, verse 14, Simeon or Simon, Peter, um, who spoke first, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And so here, um, he's speaking back to the fact that it was God who did this. God took for himself these Gentiles, and we can get kind of lost in the, in the people that are, are speaking up. So yeah, Peter was the one who had this interaction with Cornelius. Yes, Paul and Barnabas were the ones who went and performed these miracles. But, um, but James here is reminding us that it's God who who brought them to himself, these Gentiles, how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Um, he's the one who went out and he's the one who, um, who drew those Gentiles to himself. With this word of the prophets agreed just as it is written. So he's about to, to jump in to a, a quote from Amos in the Old Testament a quote that is a little bit misplaced. It seems um, a little bit different that he would take from, from this passage and, and present it. And so it's really a, a difficult quote to, to kind of wrap our minds around and try to understand why it is that he would insert it here. And there's um, a couple of different opinions on why it would be inserted here, but we'll go through and we'll, we'll take a look at it. So it says, verse 16, after these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. And so looking at, at 16, after these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. Has that taken place? At this point, mm -hmm. no, it's not yet yet taken place. Jerusalem not what's that? Yeah, but it's not restored like like it was before. So yes, Jerusalem is a, a nation now, and there's a a greater potential now than in the last two thousand years, um, but still not restored and rebuilt in the way that that I think this is prophesying, that they will rebuild the tabernacle, he will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. So this is yet future, not only for Peter, when, or for James when he's speaking this, but still for us now. This is yet to come. This is future in the millennial kingdom when 
Israel is going to be restored. They're going to be brought back to the the glory that they once had, and um, we're not we're not seeing that yet. Numbers 17 says, So the rest of mankind may see the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So verse 16 is focused on the Jews saying, I'm going to restore the Jews. I'm going to restore Israel and Jerusalem to what they once were. And then verse 17 transitions says that the Gentiles will be able to look in and, and gaze and see this and see the glory of God. And he says that the Gentiles are called by the name of the Lord. Um, just another side note that God calls them and then they seek the Lord. They seek the Lord because they're called by, by God that we love because he first loved us. And even though it's reversed in the order of the, the sentence structure here, the, the logical st structure tells us that the Gentiles are called first and then um, the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And so... Verse 16 is focused on, on Israel. Verse 17 is focused on the Gentiles. And yet the Gentiles are distinct from, from the Jews. They're distinct from Israel. They don't have to first become Jewish themselves in order to be able to look in and, and see what God is doing amongst Israel. The fact that he is restoring them to their former glory. It's something that... Um, is really highlighting the, the distinction between Jews and Gentiles and the fact that the Gentiles in the millennial age have been called of God. They've been chosen by God. And so why would anything be different in our, our current age, in the time that we're in now, in the time that James is speaking in the Jerusalem Council? Why would that differ from how God is going to look at the Jews and the Gentiles in the millennial kingdom? I'm having a hard time saying millennial. But... Um, they are differentiated in in that verse that's pointing forward to the millennial kingdom, so they should be differentiated um, now, understanding that the Gentiles don't have to first become Jews before coming to Christ. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, well, I think the Jews wanted to make the Gentiles Jews, and that wasn't the intent. Um, the Gentiles, if they're called and are chosen, Yeah, yeah, that's what the Judaizers were were getting at when they were coming down saying, "No, you need to be circumcised first. And here James is saying, "Well, you already heard from Simon how how God did that with Simon. Um, now let's appeal to Scripture, um, and that's what we should be doing. We should be living under Scripture, sola scriptura, right? We need to appeal to Scripture as our our sole authority. It's our our ultimate authority that we go to, and we realize that." This is authoritative, not what we think, not what we say. We don't get direct revelation from God like these apostles were. But we appeal to Scripture just as James did, saying, hey, look, even the, the Old Testament prophets, they had something to say about this. And he took and took the principle from that and applied it to the situation that they were in at that point in time. All right. Verse 19. Pharisees believed you were saved under the law. Yeah. And whether these guys had become Christians or not, I don't know. But obviously they were still clinging on to that ideal that to be saved, you had to be obedient to the law. Mm -hmm. 
Peter told them, even we didn't make it. Yeah. Why are you doing that for these guys? So, but they're still kind of, they don't want to turn loose of it. <laughs> yep. They're yeah, they're still under the law. <laughs> they're Pharisees. The law is everything to them. And they just can't get away from it. Yeah, back in verse 5, it calls them Pharisees who had believed. Um, but that's it's kind of vague. We're not really sure what that means, that they believe. What did they believe in? Did they believe Jesus was Messiah? Did they believe um, in a, a saving kind of way? Or did they... Uh, we're not, it doesn't really tell us what they believe. And so we're not sure if this is a part of the, the Judaizing group that came down in verse 1. Um, but they, they've definitely been influenced by them if they're not, because they're proclaiming the same message, that they have to be circumcised first before um, they can come under faith. And they have to continue to observe the law of Moses. And that's directly contrary to, to salvation by grace. If it is, if we're under grace, then it's Salvation is no longer by works. If it were, then grace is no longer grace. Um, that changes the definition of grace. Grace is to get something that we don't work for, get something that we don't deserve, and to work for it um, completely perverts it. Other thoughts or questions? All right. This fun, kind of nuanced ambiguity of not knowing who is in what group and what they believe is going to continue throughout the rest of our passage. So it's not always super clear, but hopefully we can um, land on uh, a, a consensus of somewhat of an understanding about what's going on in this passage. Verse 19, therefore, still James speaking, therefore it is my judgment. So again, we see the, the authority coming out here. He's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay down a judgment. I'm going to lay down a rule. Not Peter, not the Pope, James. Therefore, it's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Um, so he's saying, we don't want to intervene. We don't want to place anything else on them. He's saying they don't need to be circumcised. And even though he doesn't use that, that verbiage, he doesn't say specifically they don't have to be circumcised this is definitely included within this statement that we don't want to trouble them um, who are turning to god from among gentiles we don't want to add anything to them we don't want to that word trouble means to annoy um, or to to bother it's it speaks of somebody sitting back and throwing rocks at somebody's feet as they're trying to pass on a road and he says we don't want to do that to the to the Gentiles. We want to allow them to come to God without uh, any stumbling block or anything that's going to, to get into their way. Um, we don't want to add to the gospel. Um, so it's his judgment that we don't want to do those things. So he's just reiterating that salvation is by grace alone apart from works couple weeks ago when we were teaching the, the kids their catechism, um, we wrote up on the board that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And that's what they were learning that week. And that's what James is saying here. You can't add to Jesus. You can't add works. You can't add baptism. Jesus plus, plus anything doesn't equal salvation, doesn't equal uh, a better salvation or a better degree of sanctification or better place in heaven jesus plus anything equals nothing and their question that they were working on um i wrote it down here i have to look through and find it 
um, was, should those who have faith in Christ seek their salvation through their own works or anything else? And the answer to that catechism is, no, everything necessary to salvation is found in Christ. So our kids are learning pretty high-level theology that these elders and apostles had to come together at a council to, to gather and, and to get straight. So that's pretty cool. I like that. Hopefully our kids grow up a lot smarter than we are. Through, through Acts and even with that example, I mean, how many times do we have to repeat that to ourselves, each other? I mean, they, they obviously had to, to all Jews um, that grew up with what they grew up with. And even ourselves that aren't Jews, it just feels like a lot of times you have to earn it. And the world tells you you have to earn it. And yeah. you're the religion. Yeah, it's absolutely unique. That is the distinctive mark of Christianity, grace, that we are saved apart from anything that we do. And that's not only contrary to all world religions, that's contrary to our, our everyday life, our way of thinking. Um, if a man does not work, he shouldn't eat, right? First Thessalonians. And, and that's a, a practical reality that we know. If we want something... We have to work for it. No such thing as a free lunch. But there is such thing as free salvation. That's the only way for salvation. Um, because we are so, so rotten, so dirty, that we are completely unworthy. All right, verse 20. Um, James expounding on this thought of not adding anything to the gospel, not troubling the Gentiles who are turning to God but that we write to them that they abstain from the things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And so this gets a little complicated, right? A little confusing because he just said, we don't want to trouble the Gentiles who are trying to come to God. And then he says, but... Let's tell them not to do these certain things. And so to try to balance that, try to understand, well, what is he saying? If we're not tr trying to trouble these Gentiles, why place these other burdens upon them? Any initial thoughts? He's addressing most of the other false teachings that were going around at the time. Not just the... Yeah. We can we can be sexually immoral. We we can worship other idols. We can do this because we're saved. It doesn't matter. Yeah, we do have to to be aware of. Yeah, it was a a popular teaching that was going around. Um, John speaks to it in, in 1 John and other places really speak to, I think in, in Galatians he's speaking a lot towards Gnosticism specifically and um, that really ties in with what we've been looking at here that we need to stay away from the law. And so this whole idea of um, 
the law, the fact that we're not under the law, but the law still has some kind of influence in our lives. We don't want to be antinomian. We don't want to be against law and say that, well, we can just do whatever we want. You know, God saved me by, by grace alone. Amen. I can go on and I can live however I want. We are not saved by grace plus works, but um, we are saved by grace, and that is evidenced by our works. And so we works aren't completely irrelevant in the life of a Christian. And in fact, that's what he's speaking to here. He's not speaking to the fact that we are saved by works, but these works are vital in the fellowship of the body, in the fellowship of the church, and in the witnessing and evangelism towards unbelievers. And so, again, we're dealing with a, a completely different time, a completely different culture than what we're in now. And so we have to recognize that this is all completely new. Um, these Jews who have been told for for centuries that you are the chosen people and you must follow these different civil laws, these different ceremonial laws, these different things that point to the holiness of God because he is the, the theocrat that is ruling over the nation. And so things are, are, are special for you guys. You have special laws, dietary laws and um, laws on, on how you should and should not act and then everything changes with the church. And so while these requirements here aren't law in verse 20, he's not saying that you have to keep from doing these things in order to be saved. He's saying that it would be prudent for you to keep from doing these things in order to keep your brother from stumbling because you're going to go and you're going to be living in amidst amidst all these Jews and these people who have been under these, this, this tutor, this pedagogos, this law master who's been um, leading you to Christ, letting you know that you fall short of, of God's glory for all these years. And so in order to live in harmony, it would be prudent for you to not do these things that they've looked at as idolatrous for so long. And so the, the things that he mentioned specifically is to abstain from things that are contaminated by idols. So he's speaking of meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And later on, Paul says very clearly, very plainly, that it's okay to eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. However, you need to consider your brother when you're doing it and how that could affect your brother. And so the way that it would work is these faults... Uh, teachers would take meat and they would sacrifice it to false gods but it wouldn't be eaten up or consumed by these false gods so they would take that meat and then they would sell it for profit at market and people would go and they would buy this meat and you could buy, often buy it for a, a cheaper price and so people would go and they'd buy this meat that had been sacrificed to an idol because it was cheaper perfectly good meat, it's just sat in front of a piece of wood or a piece of stone for 15 minutes before and so nothing wrong with doing that unless you're a Jew, then in your mind, that could be problematic for you. Um, he mentions fornication. There's all kinds of uh, sexual temple worship, temple prostitutes and, and orgies that go on at these temples of Diana and um, these different cultic religious practices that were associated with idolatry, with false gods. He says to abstain from what has been strangled and from blood. Um, 
in in the law that we just got going, done going through in Deuteronomy, uh, God gives very specific commandments on abstaining from blood and not eating an animal when it has a blood within it. And so one way to make sure you you don't do that is to not eat something that's just been strangled, but something that's been actually killed and drained of its blood. And so he is, uh, that is, James is saying, I think it's prudent for you Gentiles to abstain from these things for the sake of your brother. In verse 21, he says, For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So again, he's just appealing to the fact that this is a, a long-standing practice, centuries and centuries. People have been reading this law of Moses that's been speaking against these things. And even though we have full liberty in Christ, it's more prudent to abstain from those things so as to not make your brother stumble. And so do you think that the, the Pharisees or the believers that were Judaizers wanted to see that external circumcision, something visual they can see? But what James and Peter and Paul and Barnabas are talking about is a circumcision of the heart to remove those things that will soil them and, and take them away from um, wanting to follow Christ. It just seems that way to me that they want to clean them, purge their heart. Yeah. Yeah. As Christians, we are under not the, the law of Moses. We are under a law of love. Um, Jesus said that there is no greater commandment. Um, you're to love the Lord your God. You're to love your neighbor. And one way to do that is to consider them as more important to um, to not take your liberty and use it for yourself, but to set aside your liberty so that your brother doesn't stumble. And that's kind of expounded upon and developed later on in, in Scripture by Paul. Um, and so what he's going through here and saying you should abstain from it, it's for a time, it's for a season, um, and it's more of a, a prudent suggestion, I think, than a law. Not you have to do this, but it would be prudent for you to abstain from these things for the sake of your brother. Uh, let's look at Romans 14 real quick. Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 are really the key chapters where Paul goes through and talks about our use of liberty and how we want to consider our brothers. So Romans 14, will somebody read verses 1 through 4? So there we see uh, an acknowledgement that some people are still under these dietary restrictions and their conscience doesn't allow them to eat certain things, and that's okay. We shouldn't judge them for that. We shouldn't try to make them eat certain things. Um, go down here. Let's start in verse 10. 
But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Um, verse 12. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. And again, I think those things would have definitely been stumbling blocks to eat uh, meat sacrificed to idols, something that has not, or that has been strangled, that's not been drained of its blood. I know and I am convinced in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Um, this gets into the whole issue of adiaphora, what is indifferent, what is not innately good or innately bad. It is um, it's one of those third column issues, those doubtful things that can either be good or bad, and it's not necessarily one or the other. Um, let's see. Let's jump down to 19. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. For whatever is not of faith is sin. And so I think this is kind of where James is, is coming when he's saying, yes, we don't want to um, trouble the, the Gentiles in any way. However, let's tell them to abstain from these things for the sake of fellowship so that they can come together as one body in Christ and also for evangelism's sake. So when, when some Jew who is walking down the street sees some guy eating a, a pork chop, he's not completely turned off by him. And he can go and he can approach him and say, hey, I know the Messiah. And he's able to, to speak to him more easily than he would be if he was eating meat sacrificed to an idol or drinking a cup of blood, even though that's not necessarily the picture, but it's what he's told to abstain from. Any thoughts on that? It is kind of confusing having that statement right on the heels of, we don't want to trouble the Gentiles. Let's just tell them not to do these things. So I think it's important that we understand where he's coming from and why it is that he would have told them not to do those things. All right, we got 15 minutes. We need to pick it up. Um, will somebody read 22 through 29 back in Acts 15, please? Yes, please. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders uh, with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch uh, with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren, and they sent each other by them to the apostles. And the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and uh, that place, and there who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that uh, some of our number to whom we gave no instruction and disturbed you with their words and sending your souls, and seem good to us, having become one mind to select men to send to you uh, with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, 
men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the this seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, which are abstain from being sacrificed by us, from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. All right. So in this section, they're pretty much just executing what they had talked about, sending off this letter. A uh, couple of things I want to point out. Back in 24, does somebody who has a different translation um, want to read that for us? Not NASB? Uh, ESV or... There we go. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled with the words, unsettling yourselves, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. All right, so... There at the end, he says, we gave them no such commandment. Um, they went out and they spoke something else that was contrary to the law, something we didn't tell them to speak. And in pretty much every other translation other than NASB, it's rendered as they went out from us, which immediately brings to my mind First John 2.19, which says they went out from us because they were not part of us. They were not of us. And that's definitely one of the, the main interpretations of this passage, saying that these guys who were disassociated with us, they're not believers, they're not from us, they went out and they were teaching this doctrine that says you have to be circumcised. We didn't tell them to teach it, and so now we want to come and we're all, we're all together in one accord. We have the apostles, the, the elders, it says the brothers, and we're writing to you guys, to the brothers um, who have heard this false teaching. We're all in one accord. We want you guys to be in one accord. And this is the message that we have, we've come up with. This is the word that James spoke authoritatively at the Council of Jerusalem to say that you're under no burden, no obligation, but do these things um, in italics for the sake of the fellowship of the brethren. Um, one other thing, let's see. That word in verse 24 for disturbed says, we gave them no instruction, and yet they have disturbed you, or they have troubled you. And that's not the same word of, for trouble that we saw back in 19, saying, oh, we don't want to trouble the Gentiles. It's a, a heavier word. That's the word that was used in Matthew 2, when Herod is, he catches word that there's another king who's been born. He calls himself the king of the Jews, and this troubled Herod. He was worried. Um, in John 11, when Mary is grieving over her brother Lazarus, she is she's troubled. And Jesus, he comes along and he's troubled at heart because of her grief. And um, that's when Jesus wept after he was troubled. He used the same word of, of Jesus. Um, several times towards the last few hours of his life, this same word is used of him being troubled in spirit, troubled in heart as he's predicting his death, as he's talking about his betrayal and how uh, Peter is going to deny him. And several times this word is used, it's trouble, he's, he's troubled. It's, um, it's a lot more than just having rocks thrown at you as you're trying to pass down the road. Um, it's a, a different word to be disturbed. And also, um, we're gonna get into, in chapter 17, on their second missionary journey, Paul and Silas go to Thessalonica 
and Jews come and they they scurry them out of town. Um, they trouble them and disturb them to get out of town. And then they follow them on to Berea and they do the same thing to get them out of town. Um, let me read this verse for you in Acts 17, 13. It says, but when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And so it's a, a strong word, and it's often used of um, being in physical pain, but um, also often used of um, heretical teaching and the effects that the heretical teaching can have on the the souls of the people that are being influenced by this teaching. It's used also in Galatians. Let's see if I can find this. Galatians 1, 7. Well, 6 and 7. This is Paul writing back to these same people who have been influenced by the Judaizers. And he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you or troubling you and want to distort that gospel of Christ. And so it was a big deal for people to be perverting the gospel, the truth of the gospel. Again, that's why they came together for this council in the first place, to keep the, the gospel pure and um, to maintain that purity amongst the church. Um, they sent out... Paul and Barnabas sent out two other guys with them just to kind of confirm that it wasn't just the teachings of Paul and Barnabas that um, circumcision wasn't required, but they had at least three other people with them who were going out and helping to proclaim this message. Will somebody read verses 30 through 35, please? When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace so to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. How far? That's good. Perfect. <laughs> All right, so what's their response when they get this letter? This letter says, yeah, we don't want to trouble the Gentiles, but keep these, these four things. How did they respond? Very encouraged. They were very encouraged. So they didn't feel burdened. They didn't think, oh, I don't have this ability, this liberty in Christ. They felt liberated. They felt as if they were able to, to be in Christ without having to be circumcised, without having to become a Jew first. Um, they rejoiced, and they were encouraged by the message that they got from Jerusalem. Like what James said about Moses being preached in every synagogue, it's like Gentiles knew about it. They knew how much work it took, and they were probably worried that they were going to be forced to do a lot of it. So we see it still, we, we see it right now as maybe more than we thought it should be, but for them it's probably like, hey, do these couple things and you're good. Yeah. And we have to recognize those couple things weren't for salvation. Um, and 
that's that's vitally important. We can't understand them to have been about salvation, but just for fellowship, for um, ministry purposes. Today, when I was working, pulling Pepsi out of my truck, I was looking across the street and I saw, well, before I, when I was in my truck, I just heard this thud, thud, thud. And so I thought, well, what is that? And so I looked out the street, I looked, and I saw a, a firefighter flipping over this big wheel, like huge tractor wheel. And at the same time, I was talking to Britt and to Marshall on the phone. And for whatever reason, I thought, I wonder if Marshall, if he were here, he would go up and he would tell him, why don't you just stand it up on its side and wheel it over to, to get it where you want it? But, but that's not his purpose. That wasn't the intent of the firefighter. He's out there like doing some kind of um, strength CrossFit. building or yeah, CrossFit training, right? Um, and and that's not the purpose of of keeping these for the Jews. But even though they were freed by the law from these certain rituals from abstaining from these certain things, they weren't free from their conscience. And so their their goal isn't to get that big wheel from one side of the parking lot to another. Um, they have a different goal in mind. And I think James wanted to, to stress that to the Gentiles as he was writing to them so that they wouldn't hinder the conscience of the other people in the church. All right, verses 36 through 41. But before we do that, um, 35, Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, and they were teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. And that's really what all of their ministry is about, is teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. Um, we see that wherever they go, in whatever city they're in, they're teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. And in this last section, we'll see their desire for spreading that word and for evangelizing. Um, will somebody read those last few verses for us, please? 36 through 41. Um, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now, Barn now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul called Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. All right. Isn't that encouraging? We see that they stuck around for a little bit. It says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go and visit the brothers in each of the cities where we were before, where we proclaimed the gospel. Let's go back and let's visit them and let's strengthen them. Uh, that was Paul's heart. That was his desire. It was his ministry to go back and to disciple, to make disciples, not just to make converts. He went back to the same places he went on his first missionary journey to check up on these people that he loved and make sure that they were getting along well and to strengthen them in what they were doing. And on his third missionary journey, he goes back to the same churches because he, he wants to build them up. He wants to encourage them. He wants to make sure that he is making disciples who will go on and make disciples. Um, that is his method of evangelism, and clearly it was quite effective. Um, we see here the, the split between... Barnabas and, and Paul and the 
the dissension that they had. It seemed like it was a, a pretty good argument, enough for them to actually split split up. And um, there's pretty strong language that's used here of how they were disagreeing. Um, no small argument between them. But because of that, we have two missionary couples that were going out and proclaiming Christ in different regions. They don't have to um, cross each other's paths, but they can go out and they can proclaim Christ in different areas. And so even in the midst of this very real, very human-like interaction that kind of brings Paul and Barnabas down to our level for a minute, we can see how God works in that situation for his good, for his glory. Thoughts or questions on chapter 15 and all that stuff we went through. It is a huge chapter. It's an exciting chapter, and it goes from all different areas of emotion. You know, we have these people coming in, and they're trying to deceive, and then we have this dispute and this council, and, well, yeah, we don't have to be, we don't have to work for salvation, but do these other things, and then... They go out and they proclaim Christ and everybody's excited and then there's this split between Paul and Barnabas and then they just kind of go off their, their separate ways. And that's really the start of the second missionary journey. But it is an important chapter, lots of nuance again. And it's kind of difficult to understand because it's a completely different time, completely different culture. But it is vitally important to our understanding of theology. All right, time to go home and go to bed, huh? I feel that. All right, let's close out in prayer. God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. We thank you for your Holy Spirit and how he leads and guides us. We pray that we would continue to have a, a better understanding of you every single day. That we would have a, a deeper, more rich understanding of the gospel. And we thank you that... It is by faith alone that you have saved us. God, we pray that you would help us in our use of liberty as Christians, that we wouldn't cause anybody else to stumble, but that we would um, elevate in, in our minds and our hearts the unity of your body. God, if there's one part of your body who's hurting, then the rest of us hurt alongside, and we don't want that. We want there to be complete unity. We want to be in one accord with each other. We pray that you would help us to to achieve that end, that goal, and that we would um, have a, a love in our hearts for each other. We would live under the, the perfect law of liberty, the perfect law of love, and that we would have a, a complete humility amongst ourselves so that we could love each other just as you loved us. Pray this in your name. Amen.